Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network, and I'd like to tell you that we have a new and improved website. It has two new features that we think you'll love. One of them is a vastly improved search engine so that when you type in keywords, you'll get a bunch of episodes really quick. The other is the ability to create a listener account. And in that listener account, you can save episodes for later listening. So you can create a kind of listening list. We think these features are neat and we think you'll enjoy them. Please visit the site today. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody. I'm Deidre Tyler. Today, we'll be talking with Bruce W. Deerstein, author of The Spirit of New York, Defining Events in the Empire State's History. How are you doing today? Very well. Thank you so much. I wonder if we could begin the interview by saying a few words about yourself and how you became interested in this project. Sure. Well, I'm a uh, I'm actually a lifelong New Yorker, and I've been a historian all my professional career. Uh, I lived out most of my life here. I went to college here, uh, graduate school here, and uh, taught New York State history. Worked for the New York State Archives and just loved uh, New York history. Uh, But over the years, it seemed to me there must be a livelier way of presenting it than some of us have in the past. And that is a way that engages uh, teachers, young people, and just average citizens in the history of this great state. There are textbooks that that cover cover it very well, but what, what I thought I'd try here in this book is something else, which is telling the story in the, of New York in the form of 20 uh, relatively short stories of events over the course of our history that have taken place from the uh, beginnings of the state when the first state constitution was promulgated uh, on through the, the last event that I cover, which is the opening of the musical Hamilton, uh, in 2015. So I call this a scholarly book for a popular audience. It's built around 20 episodes or events in our history. Uh, people like to learn history, understand it, and retain it uh, through stories. So I tried to do that, and I've tried to put people at the center and let them say a lot about what happened in their own words insofar as I can. So 
what, what I've got here are events, what led up to the event, the event itself, which took place on a particular day or maybe over a couple of days, and then what the ramifications were. Why is it difficult to capture New York State's history? Well, I'm not sure it's more difficult than any other state, though I think sometimes it seems that way. Uh, We have a lot of history here, going back to the earliest settlement by indigenous peoples. Uh, We had Dutch settlers here uh, for a while, beginning in uh, 1619 or so. New York is big. It's the largest uh, state in the nation, most populous for most of the time over its history. And it is exceptionally uh, complex. Uh, a lot of diversity here. I think we're the most diverse state in the country uh, through most of our history and, and now. Um, urbanization, industrialization, And that meant we faced some of the problems which the entire nation faced uh, earlier than some other parts of the country, and we had to deal with them. Uh, Social reform, economic reform, uh, uh, social justice, and the like. So we're we're complex. And in addition, we're, we're split in the sense of New York City being at any given time, about half of the population, sometimes a little more than half, and in a way having its own separate uh, history. So it's almost like in some cases, uh, for some topics, New York is really two states, (laughs) New York State and and New York City. Uh, It's a very exciting history, however, but to capture it all, even in the form of stories like I've tried to do here, is is pretty challenging. Uh, this book is long. It's about uh, 450 pages long. And still in all, if I had more space, I would have put in even more stories, which would have made it too long. But that that's why. We're just a very big, historically complex place. You selected events to help you tell the story of New York. How did you decide on these events? Well, that's a that's a good question. That was hard. Uh, I tried to find an event that took place on a single day so I could provide a vivid accounting, but also uh, let people speak for themselves about the day, what led up to it, what its ramifications were. I look for things that have had limited uh, attention from historians. Uh, for instance, the, um, uh, the story of Glenn Curtis, who most of your listeners probably will never have heard of, was a, an important aviation pioneer and arrival of the, um, of the Wright brothers. I look for things that were interesting stories, lots of life to them, with some drama, excitement, adventure, or courage. Tried to find things that would illustrate something profound and important uh, but that was an opening for or prelude to even more important uh, developments. And so, for instance, I have here, uh, in here, we may get to this later on, the story of the Love Canal environmental disaster, which led to a lot of environmental uh, reforms. And I also looked for things that reveal the exuberance and diversity of New York over its history. 
and that's pretty easy to find because New York has been such a uh, a diverse place with with so many interesting people and so many interesting groups right from the beginning of our of our history. So those are criteria I followed. Uh, I didn't put in some of the some of the usual suspects. So. Uh, people have said, well, where's the Erie Canal? That's important. Well, certainly it, it is. But that's been uh, that's been written about uh, quite a bit. Well, where's the Civil War? Well, that's certainly important, obviously. But it's been written about a lot. New York's role in the Civil War has been written about a lot. So uh, so I left that I left that out. So I tried to find things that had not been worked extensively. And that people might find uh, refreshing. They might say, "Ah, aha! Uh, I never knew that," <laughs> or, "Or I'd heard about that, but I never knew all of the details." So that's that's what I tried to do. April twenty second, seventeen seventy seven. Tell the audience about that day. Well, uh, many people don't realize it, uh, but every state has its own constitution, and they're very important. We talk about the U.S. Constitution a lot. State constitutions, in some ways, are are of equal importance, state by state. And so, in late 1776, early 1777, New York, along with the other original colonies, was in a state of rebellion. It wasn't exactly independent quite yet, but neither was a part of the British Empire anymore. And through a kind of an ad hoc process, a group was uh, elected. It happened to be all men in those days to authorize the state to join the others in the Declaration of Independence, which it did, to write a constitution for the state, and at the same time to conduct the state's war efforts. Now that's a that's a big that's a big job. So this group began in New York City. And the British took that over, and it retreated slowly up the Hudson River to uh, Kingston, New York, which is about halfway to Albany, where it finished its work writing the state's first constitution, which was uh, finished on April 20th, 1777, and formally promulgated, that is, read aloud to a group of Kingston citizens, on April 22nd, 1777. And that document is quite amazing. It's short. It has the constitu- the um, I'm sorry, the Declaration of Independence as a kind of a prelude uh, written right into the document. It sets up a framework for the legislature and the governor, not dissimilar from what we still have today. It has a placeholder for the courts. It guarantees freedom of religion, but not other rights. That had to be done later by legislation, but it's a Bill of Rights. Uh, It restricted male suffrage. It did not allow women's suffrage. It took a long time to get that. And it perpetuated slavery, which lasted in New York until early in the 19th century. So that was done in, in April. And that was a lot of work. However, they didn't stop there. They held the first elections. 
the first state legislature and the governor assembled in Kingston in late summer and early fall. Uh, They fought off British invasion threats from three directions, including from the north in the famous uh, Battle of Saratoga in October 1777. And then they had to clear out of town, actually the day before Saratoga, when the British army reached Kingston and wound up burning it. And they left town, uh, just ran uh, elsewhere uh, in the Hudson, Poughkeepsie, not, not too far away, and resumed their work. So 1777, for New York at least, is kind of a, of a miracle year. I mean, you talk about against the odds stories, a lot of heroics, a lot of courage, and they got an awful lot done in a very short period of time. Now, they did that by pulling together and compromising, and in some ways, the Constitution, as I try to describe in the book, is a consensus document. Not everybody got what they wanted. A lot of people were not totally satisfied with it, uh, but they went along with it for the good of the cause. So that's why that's a significant date, I think. The book, The Last of the Mohegans Novel, by a New York writer. How did this book influence history? Well, The the Last of the Mohegans is a famous novel by James Fenimore Cooper, published in 1826. And I talk about this in the book because it was probably the most widely read and influential novel in the remainder of the 19th century and well into the 20th century. It actually concerns the fall of a fort in Lake George, New York, which, by the way, the fort has been restored. People can can visit it uh, from the British uh, who were holding it to the French during the so-called colonial wars in 1857. A a significant battle, but not not a turning point by any means. But after the British forces surrendered. They were supposed to have safe passage out to go to another fort and, and safety. And the French and their, their some of their Native American allies violated that, uh, uh, attacked some of them. Uh, a few people got killed and so on. What Cooper did was to take that event, dramatize it, uh, exaggerate it, uh, play a lot on the, the so-called massacre and kidnapping of uh, some American civilians uh, and uh, struggles that, that ensued. And he wrote so well. It is so vivid. It is so dramatic that you can visualize events. And I would say to your listeners, that's worth reading even uh, today. People are amazed uh, when they pick it up. It's, it's, really a, it's really a very good story. He also kind of, uh, of articulated the prototypical American hero whom he called Hawkeye, who was a, a neither British nor French, uh, but an American, that is a New Yorker, uh, strong, determined, uh, rescued women who were kidnapped, uh, always fought for what is right, loved the wilderness, distrusted uh, civilization, and just emerges as a as a wonderful hero. Now, this was not only a novel uh, for so many years; 
It was actually made into nine separate movies, <laughs> including the latest one in 1992. It's also been the subject of uh, some TV shows and other things where they don't acknowledge that it's from Cooper and Lancelot and Mohegans, uh, but it but it is. That is, they take they kind of take and use his storyline. So uh, it's influential, and it's one of those things that. It's much better remembered and recalled uh, than the event it it uh, it depicts, which is, as I said, important but not a key uh, battle or anything of the sort. If people know anything about that uh, battle, they probably know it through reading uh, James Fenimore Cooper rather than directly uh, from from history and historians. Uh, so. I put that in in part because it's one of those events where the fictionalized version or versions, if you count all of the um, movies, really outdistance, outshine, uh, are, are, are bigger than the actual event itself as it went down in history. July 4th, 1839. Give us an example of what happened with those farmers. Well, in the early 19th century, much of the land on both sides of the Hudson River uh, here in New York, uh, both sides from New York City to Albany, was held by a family called the Van Rensselaers. And they had gotten it way back in 1629 uh, by a grant uh, from the King of Holland when the, uh, when the uh, uh, Dutch uh, settled here and... and uh, had a colony they called New Netherland, and it held on it through the English takeover of New Netherland, and then the uh, American Revolution, the American uh, takeover, if you will, and the coming into existence of New York State. There were a lot of farmers leasing this land who had to pay pretty high rents. And they found that hard to do once the Erie Canal opened in sixteen in I'm sorry in 1825 because of a competition from the West about uh, agricultural products. Prices were down here in the East, and so they asked the Van Rensselaers, then in the about the fourth generation, uh, to come down with the rent, or better yet, to let the farmers uh, who had been uh, occupying the land buy it. Uh, that's mainly what they wanted to do. But the Van Rensselaers said no. And so the farmers uh, got together on this particular day in the town of Bern, New York, which happens to be my, my hometown, a very small town here in Albany County. And they wrote this marvelous document, kind of modeled on the Declaration of Independence, challenging the Van Rensselaers' right to hold the land in the first place. And that led to a refusal uh, to <clears throat> to pay the rent, uh, and the Rensselaers insisting that they pay it and trying to evict them uh, using eviction uh, agents and sheriffs and so on, even the state militia, the predecessor of the National Guard at one point. And it wound up being what's arguably the largest tenant <clears throat> rebellion in history, which went on for about uh, 20 years, and including at least uh, a couple of, of uh, people who got, who got killed uh, during this. 
uh, in the end, <clears throat> while the legislature tried to deal with this and there was a state constitutional convention, uh, nothing really worked except they outlawed this sort of thing in the future. Uh, but gradually the Van Rensselaers kind of gave up, figured it wasn't worth any more, uh, settled with their tenants that had sold them land, um, sold to other people who then settled with the tenants, or just kind of gradually gave up and, and um, walked away from it. But July 4th, um, 1839 is significant. Many people don't, don't know about this, even people that live um, around here uh, near Albany, where I, I happen to be. But it was a very significant event in New York history. July 20th, 1848, a demand for equal rights. Tell us about that event. Well, that, that may start out <clears throat> as uh, something more familiar. That's the date of the famous Seneca Falls Women's Rights Convention, organized mainly by Elizabeth Cady Stanton, a New Yorker. Who demand and they demanded the right to vote, but beyond that, if you read that the, the manifesto they issued, which by the way is also kind of modeled on the Declaration of Independence, but but for women, uh, they're actually e- asking for m- much broader rights. That is, equal rights, and that's online. I urge people to uh, to read it because it's a very interesting document, but. The real story is what came after that. And what I cover mostly in this chapter in the book is you know, a little bit of the lead up to the Seneca Falls Convention, the uh, Declaration or the Manifesto, but then the 50 years thereafter or thereabouts that Elizabeth Cady Stanton in particular worked for uh, women's suffrage and, and other things as, as well. And the Seneca Falls Convention came about 70 years after the Declaration of Independence. The right to vote for women came about 70 years after that, which is a long time, uh, 1917 here in New York and 1920 uh, across the country. And at the same time, there was slow progress in law, uh, education, recognition of women's rights, but it was very, uh, very slow. So the Seneca Falls Convention and the Declaration was sort of a demand for for things which should have been uh, in, in place anyway, but it took many years uh, to get the, the keystone, which was the right to vote. I read something in your book about single white women who were allowed to keep their own property, wages, right contracts. Tell us about this. Well, in the in the early 19th century, around the time of the Seneca Falls uh, Convention, uh, mar- married women uh, were considered by the law sort of under the protection of and the authority of their husbands. And they had a limited right to control their their own property. Uh, that may be uh, startling and shocking for people to hear, but it's the way the law was in this state, and in fact, uh, in other states as well. That changed somewhat 
1848. As a matter of fact, in the legislative session just before Seneca Falls, 1848, which gave married women more right to at least control property that they owned before marriage and to possess property uh, even though they were married. So uh, that made it easier for married women. Single women, unmarried women, women who were not married, could theoretically uh, retain property rights, uh, property and wages, write contracts, run businesses, and operate independently. In other words, there's nothing in the law or the state constitution which forbade them from, from doing that. But very few women uh, actually pursued that option and remained single by choice for at least two reasons. One was marriage was regarded as the natural order of things, uh, the thing you should aim for, the, the uh, situation you wanted to be in. And as a matter of fact, most opportunities to earn a decent living or pursue professions were closed to women. Uh, de facto, that uh, they just didn't have the opportunities to get in them. So most women who who uh, remained unmarried uh, became teachers um, and, and a few other things. So having legal business rights that is seeming to have a clear path to opportunity, in fact, was really not that because there were so many kind of informal social uh, historical, if you will, obstacles uh, to women to women advancing. Uh, this is these are some of the things that uh, Stanton and her colleagues uh, uh, were, were concerned about and fought to rectify. In addition to getting uh, the right to vote, one of the quotes in your book was, "A woman is nobody. A wife is everything." I thought that was of interest during that time. Well, that's one of those quotes uh, in the book, and I'll, I'll tell you, <clears throat> some of this, when you read it, you kind of, you kind of wince, <laughs> and you think, well, how could people, how could people think that way? Uh, but it's kind of tied to the comments I, I just made about uh, independent women having it very, uh, very uh, difficult. Now, we come back to Elizabeth Cady Stanton, 1815 to 1902. She's my favorite character in, in my book. And I've written in other, in other venues uh, about her. Uh, she was determined, organized, persistent, resilient, kind of a force of nature. And the, the story goes, I think it's actually in her autobiography, that her... her uh, father was an attorney and a judge, as a matter of fact. And one day she happened to be standing outside of his office and a woman came in uh, to say to her father uh, that her husband had died and he willed all of their property to someone else. And the father explained that under New York state law, uh, that was his right. Elizabeth disagreed and so the story goes, she actually uh, came into her father's law library and started searching for laws that discriminated against women. 
and and decided she cut them out of the uh, statute books and the uh, uh, the um, uh, legal precedents. Whereupon her father said, "Well, that's not going to work. You need to go to Albany or Washington and really change the system." Uh, that may be somewhat of an exaggerated story, but I don't think it's apocryphal. In other words, she got inspired as a very at a very young age. And so she fought for suffrage, uh, uh, abolition, temperance. Uh, she uh, even wanted to reform religion because she thought some uh, religious tracts seemed to relegate women to a secondary uh, status. And one of the things I, I often quote about her is the, the day before she died in 1902, and she was pretty ill at the time, and her her eyesight was not very good. Uh, She drafted two articles about women's suffrage and also wrote uh, President Theodore Roosevelt uh, asking him to grant women the right uh, to vote. So the the quote that you have there, unfortunately, uh, reflects public opinion at the time the attitude that she and her colleagues were fighting against. However, Stanton herself got married and actually had a family. Uh, all the more amazing that she could get done all that she, all that she did, I think. So uh, that's, a, that's a quote. Uh, you wish that were, the situation were, were different. It took a long time uh, to make it different. Uh, but there it is. It's part of the historical record. October 3rd, 1851. The rescue of the slave William Jerry Henry. Tell us about that. Well, that's a, um, an event that took place in Syracuse, New York. Uh, the, the year prior, the Congress had passed the <clears throat> Federal Fugitive Slave Law, which tightened the previous law, which went back to 1797, it made it easier for owners, uh, so-called, as they, as they were in those days, uh, to recover runaway slaves and required local police and, in fact, local citizens to assist slave catchers, a rather draconian uh, law. Syracuse was one of the stops on the Underground Railroad to Canada, and people there had helped and harbored a lot of runaways, one of whom was a fellow named William Henry, who went by Jerry, but living in Syracuse peacefully for a number of years, uh, worked as a carpenter, as a matter of fact. But then one day his owner... Uh, hired a slave catcher and a local sheriff uh, in in his home state, which was Missouri, to go to Syracuse to catch him, bring him back. And they came in Syracuse. They went to the Syracuse City Police, who were required by law to assist them, who did so very reluctantly. And they broke in on this poor fellow, uh, arrested him, and carted him off to jail. And they had to get a legal extradition order from a U.S. Magistrate to take him out of New York State and back to Missouri. Now, New York State already has something of a track record of protecting uh, fugitive slaves, uh, harboring them, 
and putting some of the force of, of state authority and state government behind protecting them. Uh, but the, these um, fellows figured, well, we'll get this um, extradition order from the magistrate. We'll take him right out of New York State, uh, and that will be that. Uh, but it didn't happen that way because the word got out that this fellow had been captured and was in jail, and a mob gathered uh, approximately 2,000 people, if you can believe that, and they broke into the jail, literally tore the doors off the jail, tore the windows out, uh, grabbed this uh, fellow, hit him for a while, and then spirited him away uh, to Canada, where slavery was illegal, and, and freedom. This was organized by uh, Garrett Smith, who was a well-known abolitionist, from Peterborough, New York, near Syracuse, happened to be in town for a, a convention, and two local ministers, one a white minister named Samuel May, well-known abolitionist, and the other a, a minister of color named Jermaine Logan, who was himself a runaway uh, slave. And the three of these um, abolitionists uh, got together uh, and organized this group and, and helped get um, uh, Jerry out of, out of town. Now, this is arguably the most prominent act of defiance of federal authority, one of them certainly, before the Civil War. And when I said that to groups, they say, oh, it must be in the South somewhere. Well, no, it's not. It's in, it's in Syracuse, New York, uh, protesting against the law, which... Uh, people then, I think people certainly now, will, will regard as a, as a terrible law uh, protecting it as a horrible system that is, that is slavery. But that's the, uh, uh, that's the importance of that particular day. You know, mob breaking into a jail and rescuing a, a fugitive slave. It's a very, it's a very um, uh, uplifting and encouraging uh, story, I think. Yes. Now, I thought this was interesting. Pollution in 1899? Yeah. <clears throat> well, environmental issues, uh, pollution control uh, is, is an old story. It's basically, though, a 20th century uh, story. And I, I, I kind of stumbled onto this uh, through a, a, a book written by a friend who happened to, to mention it. This is March 30th, 1899, so just before the turn of the century. Lots of pollution of New York streams and lakes, uh, industrial runoff, municipal discharge, and, and the like. Almost entirely unregulated, except for vague laws and enforcement uh, not through state public health authorities, which are pretty weak yet, but through county public health authorities. Not really very much to prohibit people from dumping things into the streams. In 1899, Theodore Roosevelt, a new governor, uh, just took office uh, uh, earlier that year, issued an executive order requiring the cleanup of Saratoga Lake and Cataroceros Creek, which empties into Saratoga Lake, uh, just north of, of, uh, of Albany. 
both of which have been polluted by uh, plants, uh, factories making bags and dumping refuse uh, into the into the stream, which rushed into the lake. And you, if you read that executive order, it's not based on much statute, but it's a very forceful order. And Roosevelt said at the time, this is just the beginning. We're going to clean up New York's lakes uh, and, and streams. But as it turned out, uh, that didn't happen. He really didn't push it. We're not quite sure why. And in fact, he didn't issue any more executive orders about pollution. And he vetoed a bill the next year passed by the legislature, which would have required uh, pol- uh, pollution control and cleanup of another uh, stream here in New York. This is interesting in part because if you look at his record as a conservationist during his tenure of New York in, as New York governor, it's very modest. I mean, he, he set up some parks. Uh, he banned the use of bird fellers in, in women's hats. But he didn't go uh, beyond that. Later in the 20th century, slowly, gradually, uh, New York increased its pollution regulations. The Conservation Department, the State Health Department got more power uh, to, to deal with this and, and um, uh, abate it. New York did not have a comprehensive clean water policy, though, until 1949. So it took about 50 years for the state to really uh, get, get serious about this. Now, when Roosevelt became president, which he did uh, two years later, 1901, he got very uh, interested and enthusiastic about conservation, so much so that he's now known as a conservation president or the conservation president, uh, preserving lots of areas as national parks, national monuments, and, and, and the like. Here in New York, though, well, he started out strong with his executive order, about one stream and one lake in 1899. For whatever reason, he didn't he didn't follow through. Typhoid fever, 1903. Well, I uh, I mentioned this in the book a, a couple of times, so I don't I don't go into it. Uh, a typhoid fever was and where it exists still is a a very serious, communicable disease, highly contagious, which uh, could, could and did uh, kill people. And one of the ways it spread was through contamination of the uh, of municipal water, water supplies and, and the like. And after an outbreak of typhoid fever in 1903, the legislature gave the health department more power, not a lot more, but more power to deal with uh, pollution in the streams, particularly in municipal uh, water supplies. At this time, kind of shocking as it is, you found some streams where there was discharge of sewage into the same stream where downstream a community might be drawing its drinking water, and you read that and you say, "Well, that can't that can't be. People wouldn't people wouldn't do that." But they, but they did. 
uh, in part because, uh, again, surprising as it may seem, there was limited understanding of uh, the role of pollution, uh, sediments, sewage being dumped into the streams, causing, uh, causing health problems. That was something that gradually dawned as the 20th century went on. That's, a, that's kind of a whole separate story, but there are people who come along and document, uh, public health officials in particular, who document, look, we can't have this. We need clean water for, uh, for the cities. That leads to a whole uh, a movement of clean water for the cities here in New York. And again, it's parallel elsewhere. Uh, in the country, but uh, this typhoid fever outbreak, 1903, was a precipitating factor in advancing this in New York. And I think yet, like the uh, Saratoga Lake order, the Roosevelt issue, is a sign that some of these problems hit New York earlier than some of the rest of the states, just because uh, we were urbanizing so fast, population was growing so fast, uh, we were industrializing so fast, and therefore we were, that is, previous New Yorkers were, uh, polluting their streams <laughs> pretty fast. So New York had to deal with some of these things, whether well or not so well, I guess people can judge for themselves, before some of the other states. Now, May 29, 1910, here comes... Glenn Curtis, you talked about him a little bit, but tell us about that plain June bug. Well, Glenn, Glenn Curtis, as I, I just I, I mentioned uh, just briefly, was a aviation pioneer in Hammondsport, New York, near near Buffalo, <clears throat> and they became a rival of the Wright brothers. They competed over uh, selling planes later and patents and and so on. And like him, he was a bicycle mechanic at first. Then he built bikes. Then he built motors for bikes. Then he built motorcycles uh, with his engines and then put engines on dirigibles and then on biplanes. So he was kind of a tinkerer and, a, and a, uh, uh, a someone who tried things out until he got them to work. And he was just amazing at building engines. And he worked with a number of other people, including Alexander Graham Bell, who was then past the phase of his career where he invented the telephone and some other things, was interested in um, a flight to develop one of the first biplanes. There's two wing planes, similar to what the Wright brothers had, and uh, to fly it successfully. So July 4th, 1908, a date he chose uh, deliberately, obviously Independence Day, he performed the first publicly announced, publicly witnessed, including newspapers, and professionally certified airplane flight in Hammondsport, New York, which is, uh, by the way, by Lake Cuca, which is one of the uh, Finger Lakes. And he called his uh, plane kind of jocularly the, the June Bug, because at the time he did it, the so-called June bugs, which were common uh, there and common elsewhere in the, in the country, I guess, were just coming out. They, they were, they're big bugs that make loud noises. So someone told me, uh, Glenn, you've got to give this plane a name. So, you know, it'll go down in history 
with a name. He said, okay, I'll call it the June bug. So he flew it successfully. Uh, about two years later, May uh, 1910, a diff different plane. He was the first to fly uh, an airplane from Albany to New York City. He, made, he had to make one stop, which uh, was allowed under the under the rules that he was flying under. Those, those were rules that were established to uh, provide a, a, a prize for the first person who could fly from Albany to New York City. That prize was offered by uh, newspaper publisher Joseph Pulitzer, kind of as a, uh, as a way of getting publicity for his papers. But anyway, he was, uh, he was good at this, and he went on to perfect ailerons, which are kind of the, the trailing flaps on airplanes, similar to what we, we have today. Uh, began his own factory uh, in Buffalo to produce planes, fought the rights uh, in court over patents. They said he was infringing. He said he was not. I think he was right. They, they, were, they were wrong. Uh, that was finally resolved in 1917 by the U.S. government as America entered the First World War because we just needed a plane production, and so they, they worked out a compromise and Curtis is known, uh, Curtis is, is credited with many innovations, including his engines, uh, ailerons, airboats, speedboats, and later uh, the forerunner of travel trailers, not airborne, obviously, but something pretty innovative. But he's overshadowed by the Wrights, uh, who have uh, a, actually a couple of, of sites in, in North Carolina. Uh, where the uh, they had uh, tested the their the first airplane in 1903, uh, a site in Dayton, Ohio, where they lived. Uh, Curtis has a museum in Hammondsport, New York, which, by the way, is excellent, well worth visiting. But it's not a state site; it's not a federal site; it's not uh, uh, part of the uh, national park system or anything of the sort. So he's been overshadowed uh, by the rights. Arguably, I would say almost as important as they were. That was another reason for putting him in, in the book to kind of bring him uh, to prominence. So one of these New Yorkers who has sort of been forgotten by by history. Now, the information age came to New York early, February fourteenth, nineteen twenty-four. Tell us about that. Yeah, that's uh, that's true uh, in in a sense. Uh, this goes back to uh, punch card machines, the so-called, sometimes called Hollerith machines, uh, which actually go back to the early uh, 20th century. But the date I picked, uh, February 14th, 1924, was the date that international business machines, uh, soon abbreviated to IBM, still called that, was incorporated in New York State. That uh, consolidated three earlier companies, which has started out uh, about 1910 or so, and was headquartered in uh, Endicott, New York, near near Binghamton, though later with administrative offices in, in New York City. And IBM, uh, of course, pioneered in uh, computers. 
And if you follow the story from the time of its incorporation uh, as a company in 1924, it was a leader uh, for uh, several decades in computers. That is, it was uh, known for its research and development, the first for getting reliable machines to the market, uh, the first for figuring out how to make them uh, smaller because the earliest ones took up... uh, uh, took up entire rooms and were uh, uh, required a lot of uh, energy and they gave off a lot of heat and so on. And they led until the 1970s when uh, other rivals, including some international rivals, uh, began to overtake them. If you, if you look, though, more deeply into the company, they were a pioneer and progressive uh, in their heyday, in some other areas, they were known for good pay, uh, retirement, and health benefits. Uh, in Endicott, there was a, uh, a a gym where where people could work out, a place where people could uh, relax. Uh, they were among the first to encourage innovation by not overly supervising too tightly supervising people. Uh, lots of esprit de corps and spirit. They also had a somewhat uh, progressive policy toward hiring women. That is, they hired a, a lot of women and gave them professional opportunities. But the rule was that they hired single women. And when they got married, they were supposed to leave the company and um, uh, give way to, to, to someone else. So they were progressive up to a point uh, for, for their day. Beyond that, we, we wish they had done better. Now, the the, uh, the guy who put this all together and headed it for many years was Tom Watson. And after that, his son, Tom Watson Jr. And again, your listeners may recognize that name because of the IBM supercomputer called Watson, <laughs> which is, is well known for its uh, great uh, computing capabilities. That's named after Tom Watson Sr., who was the origin, the originator of IBM and who put together the incorporation in 1924. I don't know about you, but I'm very busy and I don't have a lot of time to cook. That's why I subscribe to Factor. Eating better is easy with Factor's delicious, ready meals. Every fresh, never frozen meal is chef crafted, dietitian approved, and ready to go in just two minutes. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. These are two minute meals. Factor meals are ready to eat in heat, so there's no prepping, cooking, or cleanup needed. They're flexible for your schedule. Get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Factor is the perfect solution if you're looking for fast premium options with no cooking required. Sign up and save. We've done the math, and this is important. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. Head to factormeals.com slash NBN50 and use code NBN50 to get 50% off. That's code NBN50 at factormeals.com slash NBN50 to get 50% off. April 15, 1947. Jackie Robinson. Yes, here's another one of, of, of my heroes, at least, in the, in the story. 
Jackie Robinson was a, uh, a baseball player of color. He had been an Army officer. He was a great athlete. Uh, he was a great baseball player. But in those days, uh, to play in the major leagues, uh, you had to be white. They did not allow people who were not white to play. So uh, Robinson played for the Kansas City Monarchs in the so-called Negro Leagues, and then was recruited by the Brooklyn Dodgers, uh, that is the now L.A. Dodgers, but then in Brooklyn, New York, uh, to play for them. It's kind of an audacious move on their part, which they knew would be resisted by other teams, as it was, uh, would break the color line. But they did it in part because this fellow was talented. And there were others, maybe not quite as talented, but pretty talented out there that they could also recruit. And they wanted to win baseball games. So uh, they recruited him, and he debuted in Brooklyn in Ebbets Field. That's now gone, and the, the Dodgers are long gone. They went to Los Angeles uh, in the late 1950s. Uh, he debuted playing for the Brooklyn Dodgers on that date, April 15th, 1947, which is an immensely uh, important day, I would say, in civil rights history, and I would say in, in American history. And he played until 1956. In doing that, he incurred uh, immense opposition, uh, even hostility from his own teammates at first, uh, booing on the field, all kinds of uh, the most uh, despicable racial uh, epithets. But he persevered, and he didn't. He didn't react. He was very calm under under pressure. And he underwent things and comments and such that you would have thought he would have gone and, you know, struck at someone, but he, but he didn't do that. He was a great hitter, a great fielder, a great base stealer. Uh, later, after he retired, uh, became a, um, an executive for a coffee company, but also a civil rights leader and all around a worthy hero. Now, this too, like some of the other stories here, has been made into uh, a, a fictionalized version, starting with a movie, which, by the way, is still worth watching, called The Jackie Robinson Story in 1950, where Jackie Robinson plays himself. Uh, it's quite a show. And most recently, in the movie 42, uh, which some of your listeners may have seen, came out in 2013 with Chad uh, Bozeman as uh, Jackie Robinson. Uh, 42 was uh, Jackie Robinson's number, and that's the source of the title of the movie. Uh, and after he left, it was, it was retired, uh, by the way. So this is another one of those just immensely uh, important dramatic stories that is rooted in New York, starts out in New York. Uh, none of the other teams in the country at that time would have been willing to uh, break the color line as the Brooklyn 
Dodgers did. Brooklyn was a very uh, diverse and, and progressive uh, uh, area uh, at that time. But it has national uh, implications and ramifications, obviously. After uh, Robinson played and played so well and so successfully, other teams slowly and gradually kind of got the message and they began to uh, recruit and hire uh, other than, than white players. So Jackie Robinson is a, is, a, is a real hero. He doesn't seem to have any real downsides. He's, he's, just a, he's just a good guy and a good role model. Now, June 24, 1954, the New York State Thoroughway. How did that begin? Well, this yeah, I picked this date because that was the date when the, a, 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 the largest section of the New York State Thruway, which is a superhighway running from just outside of New York City to Albany to Buffalo, uh, when, it, when it opened. Uh, it actually begun in 1946 and wasn't finally completed till 1957. And this is in there because it was kind of the brainchild of a a governor named Tom Dewey. Again, not widely remembered today, except that he ran twice for president against Franklin Roosevelt in 1944 and Harry Truman in 1948. And Dewey's one of these kind of peculiar New York characters. He's very conservative fiscally, but he's very progressive. Uh, in social areas and in and advancing the economic prospects of the state. So this was Dewey's brainchild. It required a lot of political maneuvering uh, to get it done uh, over the opposition of his opponents, Democratic opponents in those days, uh, who didn't want to give him the money, uh, called it a boondoggle, <clears throat> a waste of money. They called it Dewey's Boulevard. And at first, he promised that the state would pay for it through regular appropriations, but that proved to be just too expensive, and gradually he had to give away uh, float bonds, uh, uh, begin charging tolls for it, and it's been, uh, it's still in operation today, by and large, a success. It did have the imp- the effect of kind of putting out of business or diminishing at least the state's railroads to which it ran parallel and its Erie Canal, which had been enlarged in 1918, was called the Barge Canal, uh, sort of putting that out of business too because it took away uh, much, of the, um, much of the freight uh, traffic. Now, people assume, well, this is part of the interstate highway system, isn't it? Actually, it isn't. It's just a little before that. It's in part a model for it. Uh, Thruway wasn't the first superhighway in the in, uh, United States. I think it was a Pennsylvania turnpike. But it was a model, partial model for the interstate highway system. And when Dwight Eisenhower was looking around in 1953 and 54 for someone to take charge of the state, the, the um, interstate highway system, build it, uh, he came into New York and hired Bertram Tallamy, who had been Dewey's, Dewey's guy, who had built the New York State Thruway. So, again, it's a, it's a little bit of an example of New York kind of leading the way 
and then someone who had done pretty well in New York uh, being tapped to um, to go on to federal service. Now, the World's Fair opens up at a specific time, April 22nd, 1964. Tell us about that. Uh, yeah, this was one of <clears throat> excuse me, several 20th century uh, World's Fairs, World's Expositions. Opened in April uh, 1964, ran the rest of that year, and then 1965 in um, uh, Queens, part of, of New York City. And it was organized and uh, directed almost with an iron hand, actually, uh, by a fellow named Robert Moses, who had built uh, a lot of the um, um, uh, parkways in, on Long Island, uh, done a lot of urban renewal, somewhat controversial in New York City, um, a, a power generating plant in Niagara Falls, and was kind of known as the person who got things done in New York when it came to big public works uh, projects. And so this was this was pretty successful and pretty interesting. I go into this in in my book. And some of the things that were there were kind of previews of the future. Uh, GM, General Motors, had a, an exhibit called Futurama, where it projected high-speed buses and trains and going to the moon and spaceships and things that didn't quite come to pass the way they envisioned, but sort of, sort of did, and it will is today. Uh, Disney had a ride called the, the It's a Small World, which debuted there and later was in, in Disney World. Uh, and it was um, it was uh, it was very uh, very interesting. There were a few protesters there. One of the early civil rights protests about uh, trying to get um, uh, equal rights. And Moses uh, ran it, as I said, with an iron hand. Uh, but he didn't care how much he spent. And so, <laughs> at the end, uh, he left quite a uh, quite a debt, which uh, public authorities had to. Um, uh, had to pick up. If you ask people who went there, and there are still quite a few people who, went, who were there, uh, obviously, what do you remember about the World's Fair? Uh, more than one person has told me this. Well, I remember Belgian waffles because <laughs> that's what was introduced there. Uh, so waffles, now popular, were a were an innovation then. But uh, that's why that's there. It's one of those uh, kind of moments in time. Uh, harbinger of, of two years for World's Fair, uh, lots of kind of uh, uh, flavor of the times. For instance, the U.S. government had a an exhibit where they had a, um, a spaceship that Scott Carpenter used to go into orbit in 1962. Uh, so there's a lot there about contemporary life, and as I said, some predictors of, of what was going to happen in the country. August 2nd, 1978. What was going on with that landfill? Well, that's about the Love Canal environmental disaster in Niagara Falls, New York. Uh, in that in that area of New- Niagara Falls, a chemical company called Hooker, Hooker Chemical uh, had dumped uh, toxic uh, materials, 
wasn't totally clear, but it may be that the army and others had also dumped things there that they shouldn't have. The area was covered over. Uh, grass grew up. Uh, it was either part was sold, part was just given to a the school district. School was built, houses were built, and then the toxins began to bubble to the surface, and people got uh, got sick. Uh, and it wasn't totally clear what was going on. And, and here comes into the story another one of my of my heroes or heroines, if you will, a woman named Lois Gibbs, who owned a house there, uh, was just an average person, not an activist, had a kid in school, and the kid, her son, was getting sick. And she knew there was something wrong. She began to investigate uh, both in her own house and her, her neighbor's and kind of unraveled this story of all this stuff that had been dumped here, covered over, kind of covered up, and now was uh, coming to the surface, getting in, in people's basements and in the air and, and, and hurting people. And she became an amazing leader, an organizer, a publicist. Uh, she went to the local newspaper, uh, later got the New York Times to come in, uh, pushed the New York State Health Department to do something about this, and finally got the governor, it was Hugh Carey at the time, uh, to come in. And in the book, that the, in the first page, there's a picture of her walking with the governor. <laughs> and uh, it, it's funny, it's an official photo, and it shows her listening to the governor. But what actually happened on that visit was he listened to her because she was very, uh, she was very forceful and articulate. And the comeuppance of it was that they got state money and then quite a bit of federal money, uh, bought the house, uh, the, the state came in, bought the houses, raised them, uh, moved people out, uh, relocated them, uh, contained the chemicals. There was later a, a big court settlement, undisclosed amount of money with uh, Hooker Chemical. Uh, and the area was later declared clean. And if you go out there now, not at all, but part of it, people have built houses there again. And they say it's safe. I guess I'd, I'd be a little skeptical. But this led to a lot tighter uh, pollution uh, regulations. And it eventually led to the, the federal Superfund, which was, was and still is uh, the big federal uh, program with money to clean up uh, toxic sites. And Lois Gibbs uh, is sometimes referred to as the mother of the Superfund. Uh, she went on uh, to found a environmental organization, an advocacy organization, called the Center for Health, Environmental, and Justice, which is still in existence. And Lois Gibbs, as far as I know, is still there. Uh, and she's, she's just been a, a very uh, uh, very effective, tireless advocate Somewhat in the in the vein of uh, Elizabeth Cady Stanton and and others, for an awful long period of time. Now the the date that I picked, uh, which is August second, nineteen seventy eight, is actually the date by which the New York State Department of Health issued a very alarming report about what was going on in uh, uh, in, in Love Canal. I think it's still up online, so people can can read it for themselves. Uh, it's very, it's very alarming. It's, a, it's alarmist. It says people cannot stand uh, to live in a place like this where these chemicals are, 
And that was one of the events that kind of thrust this into high importance and, and dramatized it. So again, what I tried to do there in the book, and that chapter is talk about what led up to that event, including a lot of Lois Gibbs's work, and then what happened afterwards, again, including a lot of uh, Lois Gibbs's uh, work, but sort of build it around uh, that that event, which I think is, is, is appropriate because that was a very high visibility um, kind of change precipitating report. Now we're coming to September 11, 2001. Briefly, what are some of the things that... Uh, uh, yeah, I have a chapter on that. Of course, that's the infamous terrorist attack on uh, uh, New York City and, and, and Washington, uh, commonly known as uh, 9-11. Uh, that story is is pretty pretty well known. Well, what I tried to do here is look at the fire department of the city of New York, how it was organized uh, before 9-11, the degree to which it was prepared or not prepared for, an, for a disaster like this. And basically, uh, it wasn't very well prepared, even though there had been an attack back in 1993, which in retrospect was sort of a, a predictor or prelude to what was, what was coming. And how they reacted on that day, and then how they reorganized, and how they uh, afterwards were in much better shape to to coordinate, to respond, to keep track of things, and so on. Part of my story is built around a fire captain named Joseph Pfeiffer. Who, who happened to be out that day because there had been a report of a, a gas leak, which turned out not to be the case, and was first on scene at the World Trade Center after the planes hit and directed some of the first first responders into the tower, including his own brother, who was also a fireman, and his brother, tragically, uh, is one of the uh, 243 firemen, uh, firefighters who, who perished there. Uh, Pfeiffer later became one of the leaders in reorganizing the department, uh, increasing its um, its uh, agility, its uh, communication, coordination with other branches of of government. Uh, so I, I built part of the story uh, around him. Part of the rest of it, though, I built around a an oral history of the event, which was carried out. Uh, by the consulting firm McKinsey and Company, where they interviewed many of the firemen, firefighters who were there that day, and got their firsthand recollections. The and, and this was on behalf of the city of New York who had hired McKinsey. The idea was to be was to figure out how to do better in the future, <clears throat> and this was supposed to be uh, confidential, but. As it turned out, uh, under Freedom of Information Law, uh, it got out. <clears throat> it actually got to the New York Times, and then the whole thing got available online. So, well, this isn't that long ago. Uh, it wasn't when I wrote, and still, still isn't. Uh, we have an almost instant history, instantaneous history, uh, in the recollections of these uh, of these firefighters. 
So it's quite a bit of what I have, and there's pretty pretty vivid. Uh, it's what they recollected not too long after the event, uh, things they themselves experienced, uh, people they lost that day, uh, the chaos of the day. Uh, there was one uh, firefighter who kept talking about the, the fog of war, which means that once an event starts, a, a big catastrophic event like this, you, you're sort of at sea. You're kind of making it up as you go. You, uh, you can't get the right information. You, you improvise. So that's, uh, that's what that's about. It's not about the whole event. That's been documented quite a bit. It's very sad, tragic, a uh, big, big piece of, of, of history for sure. This is only about the fire department and more about policy and personality. Uh, I'm pretty selective at that. The Miracle on Hudson, January 15, 2009. Yeah, well, that's more that's more recent history, uh, I guess. Uh, uh, that's the day that a plane took off from um, LaGuardia Airport in New York City. Uh, it encountered a flock of geese, which uh, went into both the engines and immediately knocked them out. Uh, the plane went into a dive. There was not time to get back to LaGuardia or land anyplace else. And so the pilot... Chesley Sullenberger, known as Sully Sullenberger, brought it down on the Hudson River. Rather a miraculous uh, thing. And it floated for, for a while. Uh, gradually, it eventually was towed to shore or it was sunk right in the river. And while it floated, uh, an amazing uh, informal flotilla of uh, ferry boats, other boats, uh, police, uh, fire department boats, Coast Guard, and others, mostly from New York City, though a few from across the river in Weehawken, New Jersey, uh, came out spontaneously without being asked or told, uh, pulled up to the plane and rescued people, many of whom were standing on the wings of the plane. There's a famous photo, which again, many of your listeners may have seen or may, may remember, where a lot of the passengers were standing right there on the wings as the plane was sinking in, in very cold weather. It was January. It's cold weather, cold air, cold, uh, cold water. And everyone was rescued. In fact, there was only one major uh, injury, and that was one of the, um, uh, the cabin attendants. One of the reasons this went so well was uh, Sollenberger's skill in landing the plane. He had a lot of experience in, in, in doing this, including emergency situations, and then keeping people calm and getting people off the plane. And he was the last person off, and he walked the aisle twice, including the last time where the water was up to his, his knees to make sure everybody uh, was off. So it's a great story of, of, of courage and, and bravery, uh, people rushing into action without being told, uh, a miracle of sorts when no one was killed, and kind of an instant hero in the form of, of Sully. And this was in uh, January 2009. The recession was still uh, coming on us. Uh, there was new president uh, offering hope. Obama was taking uh, uh, oath a, a, l a little while later. 
But New York City needed a hero, and you could say America needed a hero, uh, and they got it in Sullenberger. Now, Sullenberger later went on to write his autobiography, and that in turn was used as the main source for a movie in 2016 called Sully, uh, starring Tom Hanks, a very good movie, uh, by the way, very close uh, to what uh, Sullenberger said in his book, as well as faithful to other uh, uh, documentation in the newspapers and and, uh, TV uh, and so on. And he later went on after that to write a book on leadership and to talk about leadership and hero- heroism and uh, stress under stress under pressure. So uh, it's Miracle on the Hudson. Uh, the NTSB called it a forced water landing, which it was. But the uh, governor of New York uh, at that time, uh, Governor Patterson, happened to be there. Uh, at the time, and he said, I'm going to call this the Miracle on the Hudson. <laughs> and that's the name, uh, that's the name that stuck, at least uh, informally, and that's why I give the, the chapter that title. October 29, 2012, the Superstorm Sandy. Uh, yeah, this is a, um, uh, a hurricane uh, officially named Hurricane Sandy, unofficially called Superstorm Sandy because it was so big uh, and so violent. Hurricanes were, and still are, common in the fall, uh, in this part of the country at least. They come up the East Coast very often, uh, usually just uh, brush up against New York City and Boston and so on, and usually don't do uh, much much damage. Uh, but this one, this one did. It was kind of kind of took the city unawares, even though they they and the National Weather Service sort of realized a big storm, unusual ferocity was brewing. Uh, this happened to hit at high tide uh, during a full moon, which, which means the waves were even higher than they would have been otherwise. And while the, the mayor at that time, Mayor, um, uh, mayor Bloomberg, was a was a an environmentalist and was concerned with global warming and rising sea levels, slowly rising sea levels. Uh, nobody really anticipated that you would have a storm that suddenly brought waves of water from from the ocean and then from the the Hudson River in particular, uh, splashing into the city. But that's what that's what happened. This damaged a lot of homes. A number of people were killed. Power was knocked out. Hospitals were were knocked out. Uh, New York City, as it as it always does, uh, was very resilient. Uh, uh, re- recovered uh, mostly uh, uh, pretty fast. Uh, took care of the uh, the um, infrastructure problems and helped people rebuild their homes. Oftentimes. At higher levels were on stilts, so this wouldn't happen again. In some cases, they actually convinced people to move to to other areas. But it left unresolved the issue of how to protect uh, this city from some future storm uh, surges or any coastal area from uh, a big storm surge. 
and kind of lurking back to that over the long term, what are we going to do about global warming and rising sea levels, which menace uh, anything along the along the coast? So if you look at what happened afterwards, and again, I try to I try to do this. And this is story is still unfolding. It's only it's only about uh, ten years ago. Uh, there were some some berms and barriers that were built. Uh, there were some uh, other measures that were taken as far as uh, uh, requiring uh, buildings to be built in, in in certain ways. But this so far is a is a salute is a problem without a solution. One of the big the things that was proposed something called the Big U, which is sort of a wall kind of around the southern part of Manhattan. Not just a wall, but you know, some berms, uh, some other sorts of barriers. Uh, that's been partially built, but not uh, not uh, most of it, because it's just too darn expensive. People can't can't find the money to do that. Federal government put some money in this, and they, then they sort of pulled back. So Superstorm Sandy, I think, is a story of resilience, not only part of the city government, but on the part of people, uh, but also a continuing problem, one which may come back again uh, in the form of storm surges and hurricanes, and one which will certainly come back over the long term uh, in terms of rising sea levels. Now, February 17, 2015, Hamilton. Yeah, that's the uh, uh, that's the last chapter of the book. Uh, that's the date when the what was to be the hit musical uh, play Hamilton uh, opened in New York City. Uh, that's the story of Alexander Hamilton, a Revolutionary War leader, uh, one of the advocates for the Constitution, first Secretary of the Treasury, organizer of political parties. Uh, and it goes into many aspects of his career, but it does so in in the ter- in in the form of a brilliant play with a mixed race cast, uh, hip hop music, and a lot of just very uh, interesting and exciting kind of non-step, non-stop um, action. It's the brainchild of Lin Manuel Miranda. Uh, and, and by the way, this this has been available. I don't know if it still is on television. Otherwise, you had to you had to go to uh, first a um, theater in New York City, and then then out across the country. But I think now it's available on TV, and it's just really interesting to to watch. Uh, Miranda, if you look into this, uh, said later in interviews he, when he started this, he knew nothing about Alexander Hamilton other than. He was on the $10 bill, and he had been killed in a in a duel, which he was with Vice President Aaron Burr in 1804. And this this is kind of ties it back to to historians and history, I guess, because he says he got interested in this when he read Ron Chernow's biography of Hamilton when he was on vacation one year. And his reaction was, my goodness, this is a really interesting story. And so he, he actually hired Chernow as a, um, an advisor or a consultant 
uh, wrote this play himself, uh, starred as Hamilton uh, himself, and and got the thing uh, got the thing going, and it's just a brilliant production. It's it's fast, it's loud, it's got a lot of music, a lot of colorful uh, characters. Uh, I don't think it's totally uh, accurate as to as to its history, but it's it's pretty much pretty much follows history. I think it's got too much influence by uh, Aaron Burr and a few of the other things aren't uh, quite as accurate as they as they might be. But I think like uh, Cooper's Last of Higgins, where we sort of started out uh, a while back in this conversation, it has become more famous than the event that it depicts. And so if people know anything about Hamilton, they probably have the impression that they have from either seeing the play or hearing about the play. And indeed, uh, the play inspired the development of exhibits, curriculum materials, uh, teaching materials, and the like, and a kind of a renaissance in public interest in Hamilton. Uh, to to the, the degree that some historians uh, sort of stood back in amazement because they had written about this, their autobiographies of Hamilton or studies of the Revolutionary uh, War era, cer- certainly. But Miranda, by keeping some of the history and kind of fictionalizing some of it and just bringing it up to the current day in the form of the people, uh, that he chose to 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 act it out, the songs and the way he handled it himself, had suddenly cast it into public consciousness uh, and made people interested. So, it's interesting from lots of from lots of directions. What is the overall message you would like to leave your reader with after they read your book? Well, thank you, thank you for asking that. I, this is uh, I appreciate all that we've had a chance uh, to, to to cover. Uh, I think the overall message is: uh, look, history is exciting. Uh, sometimes you need to get down from the twenty thousand foot level, where uh, a lot of the the uh, textbooks and generalized uh, versions are, uh, down to the details, and see real people in action because. In the final analysis, history is about is about people, good, bad, or or whatever, going about their their business, uh, and so uh, I hope this shows that history is exciting. I mean the book, I've written the book. I hope uh, to be exciting. I think secondly, it shows that we can learn from history. History doesn't really repeat itself, but there are lots of precedents and parallels, and many of the issues I explore in the book are still around today, both in, in my state and indeed across the country, and to some degree, I guess, uh, elsewhere in the world, uh, constitutional rights, issues related to race and gender, uh, protecting uh, children and workers. There's quite a bit in the book uh, on that. And the role of uh, government and government policy toward business, uh, society, and people's uh, lives. I think Another thing it, it, it shows, or at least it's there implicitly, is that interpretations keep changing. As we find new evidence, 
uh, we look at evidence in old evidence in new ways, new people come uh, with new perspectives and render it uh, in different ways according to their, their own lights, hopefully not just following what is, what is fashionable, but really uh, doing the research and writing genuine history. So interpretations keep changing. Uh, studies keep coming out. Fictionalized versions indeed keep coming out. And so uh, this is another reason to keep up with things. So what we think about some of these issues now is not the way we thought about them a few years ago, and I think indeed not the way we, we will consider them in a few years from now. So I've, I've been at this a long time, uh, uh, and I still find this exciting. <laughs> I still try to share my excitement. Uh, one of the things I, I try to do here is I write for uh, the, the the local newspaper, uh, the Albany Times Union, uh, sometimes History News Network, a couple of issues in um, Washington Post made by history. The idea being to say, look, history is exciting and it's rewarding in ways you may not at first glance uh, understand because it gives you a lot of insight into current contemporary issues. Well, we've taken up a lot of your time. What is the next project you'll be working on? Well, I appreciate your time. This is this has been um, I'm immensely grateful uh, for this. Actually, for a number of years, I've been working on a, another book, uh, which is coming out as as it turns out next month. Uh, published also by SUNY Press, which um, which this book was. And this is called The the Crucible of Public Policy in New York Courts in the Progressive Era. And there I focus on the New York State Court of Appeals, uh, arguably then, maybe even now, the the most important state court in the country, uh, second uh, only in importance to the U.S. uh, Supreme Court, uh, possibly. And the cases, uh, some of the cases that came before it, which it decided, which uh, articulated things like the, the 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 rule of law, how far can government go in in protecting or interfering with people's rights, due process, which is still um, uh, much in the news today. In some of the cases right now before the U.S. Supreme Court, uh, government's role in regulating the economy, business, working conditions, and and so on. And uh, that book. I hope people will will find, well, at first glance, it sounds like just legal history, uh, really is more about the the role of government, government policy, and the role of the courts and our constitutional system in sort of balancing uh, people's rights with people's obligations and how far government uh, can can go. So uh, that, that'll be out. Uh, I'm spending a, quite a bit of time right now trying to uh, uh, talk about The Spirit of New York, the book that you've just uh, generously uh, talked about and let me talk about for so long, and about New York State history uh, generally. Well, we'll be looking forward to that necessary book that's coming out. Thank you so much for being on our show. Thank you. I really appreciate it.
guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.